Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgeoff. We've got an interesting episode for you today, and it's a bit of a departure from the standard clinical realm we find ourselves in most of the time. Today, we're going to talk about this brave new world we have stumbled into, where facts do not always reign supreme. And there's most definitely been an extraordinary and really truly historic change in the way our society interacts with information, whether it be misinformation, disinformation, or conspiracy theories, or fake news. And as this pandemic just rages endlessly on and on, we as healthcare providers have felt this in a really major way. And so for many of us, it's been an exhausting slog through one COVID surge after another. And for many of us, it's been really a visceral and and at times an agonizing experience. I mean, we can a lot of times literally watch Folks die on a ventilator alone without family. And it's really quite awful. But science caught up and it gave us vaccines. And with these vaccines, we we got hope too. And yet here we are uh, slowly emerging from yet another surge. And this one made up almost exclusively uh, of the unvaccinated. So for many of us on the front line, it's just hard to wrap our heads around it all. And, you know, when folks take positions against tried and true public health measures, whether it be our patients, our neighbors, our families, or friends, it can be both incoherent and, and really complex for us. So fortunately, we've got with us a very special guest today, Dr. Brian Southwell, uh, who is here to help us make sense of it all. Dr. Southwell, welcome. Thanks so much, Patrick. It's really an honor to be here, and it's a good opportunity to thank you for your service as well uh, during all this. So Dr. Southwell is Senior Director of the Science in the Public Sphere Program at the nonprofit research institute, RTI International. He is also an adjunct professor of internal medicine at Duke University and adjunct associate professor in health behavior at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And Dr. Southwell has published really widely uh, on topics very relevant to what we're going to talk about today. That includes public understanding of science and even emerging infectious diseases. So really, really timely. He's co-founded the Duke Program on Medical Misinformation, which is really a a fascinating uh, clinician training program. It's an initiative to help improve patient and provider conversations about misinformation. And he has organized several summits on trust in science and medical misinformation. And he's also uh, created and hosts the, the, uh, a podcast, Measures of Everyday Life, a public radio show that translates research for the general audiences out of uh, WNCU, which is a station based in uh, from North Carolina Central University in Durham, North Carolina. So, uh, Dr. Southwell, you have thought about these very topics that uh, we all find ourselves kind of scratching our head about this day. 
uh, let's start with the basics. What what is misinformation? What's disinformation? What's fake news? What's all this stuff about? And how can we uh, uh, define it? Yeah. Well, the the first thing I'll say is that that actually a lot of what we're talking about has been with us for quite some time. Um, although we are newly concerned about it for good reasons, uh, we've been living with misinformation uh, for, uh, as frankly, as long as people have been able to talk to one another uh, because we've been able to deceive each other for that, that length of time. But really, if you think about I mean, the last century or so, um, there are lots of examples in, uh, of contemporary media content that's been misleading or inaccurate. And so if we think about misinformation, we can think about that as an umbrella term, which really covers all of the, the false or inaccurate um, you know, information that, that's out there. You might think about you know, false claims, but you might also think about you know, just noise that turned out to be you know, incorrect, perhaps even because of you know, earnest and well-intentioned journalism or because of an incomplete reference to um, you know, a, a peer-reviewed journal article. Disinformation is a, a subtype really, of misinformation. And in, in the case of disinformation, you've got intentional and, and willful deceit. And it's often tough to actually know what the authorship of any piece of information is. But in some cases, we do. And from an ethical standpoint, you can really you know, be worried and concerned about instances where people are actively trying to um, you know, to, to lie you know, to one another. You also uttered um, an additional phrase, which I'm I'm not going to use um, because I think, um, in some ways, um, you know, that's become a political tool. Um, because on some, you know, there's a there's an attempt to undermine you know journalism, um, you know, here, and I think that that's not necessarily the problem. The problem is that we've got um, an information environment that's wide open, um, you know, that is regulated to some extent, but but it's still possible for misinformation to proliferate, and it comes from a variety of different sources. Um, and I think that's really the challenge that you know today's patients face um, because it's a bewildering environment, uh, and it's one that um, we really need to help them uh, you know, navigate through. Okay, the word that shall not be uttered. I, I, I like that actually better. I don't like using that term either. So <laughs> it's just I like fine. That. It's it's. But I, you know, it's been an interesting conversation because um, you know colleagues of mine have, have kind of pointed that out. That well, this is a, there's a uh, it's a catchy phrase. But it actually calls attention to perhaps the wrong part of the issue. It's it's really not necessarily no. the the news part of it here. It's more so the uh, the falsehood that we really ought to be most worried about. Right, and a disservice in a lot of settings, I'm sure too. So, so so mi- these these misinformation, it's it's really a part of modern day life. And you've read about, talked about, uh, researched, written about an awful lot about social media too as an accelerant. Sure. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So. I think one way to think about this that's crucial is that, um, you know, as human beings, uh, we're all vulnerable to some degree um, you know, to accepting misinformation. Some of us you know, might spend more time you know, in, in critical judgment than others. We all we have you know, the capacity to make sense of information eventually, but at least at, at initial contact, uh, we all tend to accept information at face value. And therefore, we're vulnerable to sometimes accepting you know, misinformation. And, and that's, that's a vulnerability that we've had for quite some time. The challenge is that we currently have an information environment that um, allows us to share pieces of information and misinformation with a thousand of our closest friends with the click of a button. And so 
that's something that um, I, I worry about because it's really a matter of the speed and the um, the quickness with which uh, people can inadvertently or, or or sometimes intentionally you know share misinformation and it can spread so quickly. That's an aspect um, that we really need to worry about. It's also the case that we've got these platforms and environments where people are connected to their peers and their neighbors, and it's sometimes the case that people are sharing information in those in those situations without necessarily carefully thinking about or vetting you know information for the truth. It's more a matter of um, you know sensational information that's you know quickly gotten an emotional response. People are sharing it um, under some circumstances. People are trying to. You know, signal some degree of tribal identity with other folks without necessarily worrying about you know whether something's factually accurate, and so all that's a recipe for you know the situation we have right now, which is longstanding vulnerability, um, human vulnerability to misinformation. But you you put that together with uh, the current um, you know social media environment, and uh, some of this can spread like wildfire. Right, and, and you mentioned the, the current environment. There's there's so much that's happened. Uh, recently, and, and with political polarization, with yeah. and now with the the, the COVID or excuse me, the COVID vac- uh, pandemic, and and the vaccine, can you can you talk a little bit about how so many different uh, powerful uh, factors have come together, and really this is coming to a head now? Yeah, so I think you know it's important for us to um, recognize many people still have some degree of a of a balanced you know media diet if you will i mean but there's there's been a lot you know written about the the extent to which many people also are are living in you know some degree of echo chambers um and and that's that's a concern uh, because you don't necessarily have um you know people acting as a um uh you know a corrective, um, you know, for, um, for their fellow, you know, peers or neighbors, instead, they're kind of amplifying, you know, what other people have said, and you're not necessarily getting cross fertilization of, of different ideas. And it's possible to spend a lot of time, you know, just soaking up those other ideas, um, you know, that are of, with like-minded people, then it takes some effort, you know, to kind of seek out. And you also have to tolerate, you know, those other viewpoints um, in order to have them come across your, your social media feed. So I think that's, that's certainly been a, an amplifying factor here, um, you know, that we've got to worry about. Okay. Now there's a, a specific scenario that I myself am very interested in, in learning more about and, and, and developing a better understanding for. And I think a lot of our listeners would too. Uh, let's take, for example, a busy surgery resident just coming off their ICU rotation. And maybe that ICU was at a hospital where uh, they cared for a majority of the COVID patients. And it was, it was challenging. It was rough. Uh, it was a busy month and, and people died. And a good, you know, good people, um, loving people died. And to then come onto the world and, and, and just kind of be overwhelmed from all angles about this vaccine misinformation and, and skepticism and other types of conspiracy theories um, and trying to square that and understand, you know, why, why do people feel that way? What makes people feel that that's beneficial to them. I mean, there, ha- there has to be a reason why. And, and I don't know what that is. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about that to maybe allow uh, our listeners to better un- understand that and also then to better understand our patients and how to approach them. Yeah, I really appreciate this you know, question. I think it's a, an important one. And you know, the first thing I'd state is that um, you know, I have a great deal of, of empathy for um, you know, the provider who's in that frustrating situation. You know, it, has to, it has to be you know, disheartening in, in lots of ways. 
I think I still, despite all of the sensational you know, headlines, despite all the what we've seen, um, I still fundamentally, though, um, you know, believe that the vast majority of people um, you know, do have the motivation and intention to uh, keep themselves you know, healthy, to keep their families healthy. And they're trying to make sense of, of this world. And I think that they're doing that without necessarily, um, you know, years and years of insight in terms of, um, you know, how scientific institutions work, in terms of how medical institutions work. We've got a, a situation of specialization and, um, you know, deep, uh, intensive you know, training on the part of our professionals that isn't that that's crucial, um, but isn't necessarily, um, you know, benefiting, uh, you know, average patient who's kind of disconnected from that system. So there's a, there's some degree of, um, you know, people were working within at the, at the cutting edge of, uh, of scientific research, not understanding why people aren't realizing, you know, how important and miraculous some of these breakthroughs you know are or recognizing how important some of this you know, research is, but then they've, they also aren't seeing that a lot of folks aren't socialized to sort of, you know, understand that. But I think the, Important thing you know, here is underneath all of this is a larger societal concern. Um, you know where we've got uh, people who are in situations of alienation, people who don't necessarily feel a connection or feel directly served by um, you know larger you know, government institutions, larger you know institutions more broadly. And if you assume that people generally are looking for hope, they're looking to make sense of the world. Some of what's offered in um, you know. Conspiracy theory, uh, you know, conspiracy theories that you might find online, some of what you might find in the sensational misinformation is tailored specifically to speak to, uh, you know, an alienated person, to speak, to offer hope where there isn't otherwise hope, to offer, to make sense of what otherwise seems like a complicated, you know, world. And so I think that there's some resonance, um, you know, in that it's easier to believe and to hold on to some of these stories that help them. Um, there, there's something larger there. There's a larger theme that are is common to a lot of these, um, you know, pieces of misinformation that are that are out there that is serving a purpose that we're not always seeing. And that purpose is, you know, to make people feel better about themselves, to make them feel more connected to a particular community, um, and and that's important too, right? Because we certainly a fundamental. You know, human aspect of our humanity is, um, you know, to, to stay alive, to not die from you know, a terrible disease. Uh, but we also know that people need to feel connected, you know, to one another. They need to feel hope. And I think, unfortunately, some of this misinformation offers that to people in a way that our current peer-reviewed journals don't. And so there's an imbalance um, here in that I don't think that there's something magic about misinformation. There's sometimes the worry and concern that misinformation you know, spreads more quickly and further you know, than true information. You'll hear that claim. And empirically, you can find some evidence uh, of that. But I think it, it doesn't mean that it's the falsehood, which is the reason why that information is spreading. It's the fact that if you were to say, um, you know, I'm going to let you say whatever you want in order to um, get people talking about you know, this you know, particular inf- piece of information on the one hand, Versus, um, I need you to, you know, have all this carefully caveated, um, you know, commentary with footnotes and everything is, you know, very careful in the way that academic papers normally are. There's an inherent advantage to being able to say whatever you want to frame however, you know, it needs to be framed. And so, sensational information, easy to understand information, even if it's wrong, might gain more traction. So I think that's partly what's happening, you know, here. Um, 
I also think that there's been a you know a rejection of you know contemporary life in in some ways for people that feel like they've got um, you know the the deck stacked you know against them, and I think we've got to you know take at least seriously the feeling and emotion there, if not the inaccurate claims. And so um, you know, so I, I tend to start from a position as hard as it is. Um, sometimes of of you know ultimate empathy for uh, the patient, while not necessarily um, a, it's not necessarily a stance that I'm going to accept you know, what they say um, as being true, um, but their feelings um, you know nonetheless uh, are their valid feelings. And as a fellow human being, um, I think we can start from a place of trying to be curious about. Um, you know, how they got to that, how do they got to that spot? And what is it about the claims that they're holding on to that are important to them? Um, and that's, I think, at the root of um, of how we might start to you know, talk to patients about this. Um, but we could talk a little bit more about you know, practical information for that very difficult conversation, you know, in, in a bit, if you'd like. Um, you talked about approaching with empathy and, and to, to do that, I think, I still want to better understand. And so, mm-hmm. so we have this sociopolitical turbulence can definitely tend to generate conspiracies and conspiracies can provide people with a feeling of, of control um, um, uh, some comfort when presented with a, a bad situation or disturbing information of, of some kind. And, and frankly, then also, and especially in a social media environment, it can be easier to trust the person um, who gives the advice, that person, as opposed right. to actual science and science can be difficult to understand which you mentioned. Uh, but today, you know, uh, 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 let's go stick with the vaccine trend. You know, being pro or anti-vaccine has become essential, it seems, in a lot of ways to people's social identity during this pandemic. Yeah. And to me, it's really hard to, to pinpoint, you know, where that, you know, everyone's scared of the pandemic. But what was the, the that main trigger or the slight yeah. that led to that thing? And especially in, this, in the face of these numbers. Because at the beginning, no one knew anything, but now we know, you know, this, the last, uh, you know, our hospital, my hospital here in in Raleigh, North Carolina, the admitted patients were 94 plus percent, you know, unvaccinated. And the numbers were, I think nationally just over 700,000 now dead. And and that's hard to ignore. And, and, and when you think about these conspiracy, conspiracy theories and and tribal identity, how that can trump everything, including someone's self-interest, that self-interest also includes dying. So to me, it's still really hard to wrap my head around that. No, that's right. And I think, you know, and I think you've seen some degree of uh, of regret, um, you know, on the part of people that have held some of these positions, you know, when they are um, you know, dying. And so there's there's that and that's tragic. Um, and I think that, you know, that's something to you know feel sad about um, you know, as well. I, I think that it's a complex situation. And I think that there it, it would it would be incorrect to say that there hasn't been some cynical manipulation of um, people's tendencies. And I think there has been, I think that there, there's been intentional uh, you know, effort to focus in on a couple of aspects of um, pandemic, you know, related recommendations that really, um, you know, tap into deeper uh, concerns and worries, you know, that many Americans have. And I think there's an American, you know, aspect of this in terms of our, um, you know, interest in and value of freedom, um, you know, generally, uh, which, you know, a lot of people would place as in, in very high regard. Um, but there's, there's also, um, you know, a, a focus on that sometimes that, um, you know, can, can leave you vulnerable because if, you know, and I think that's, that's at the heart of some of the rejection of uh, some of the various, you know, recommendations, whether it be masks or, you know, even getting vaccinated is that there's some degree of yielding to, 
a larger you know collective system or society um, you know, that that people are sometimes concerned with or afraid of um, and afraid of what that means uh, and and having to give up that degree of freedom. Now, of course, there are always you know are trade offs in life and 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 there's a degree to which you know in living in a society there are costs to that, but. Um, you know, we don't necessarily always stop to think about that. I think what's fascinating to me in part has been the rejection of some of these um, uh, remedy of some of these remedies of some of these steps when there are equally uh, you know, there, there are equal steps that have been recommended or that are mandated that we don't really blink an eye at. You know, for the most part, we don't really have widespread you know rejection of seatbelts you know any longer we don't really have you know widespread rejection of you know needing to have insurance on your car or widespread rejection of you know um, even vaccination for you know kids in school for other you know diseases um, but at the time each of those you know were implemented there sometimes is a bit of a flare-up you know here and but I also think it's fair for us to recognize that um, you know some there's been some degree of manipulation recognizing that people are particularly sensitive around restrictions and loss of freedom. And I think that's what's been played upon here um, you know, by some cynical actors. That's not the whole dilemma here. It's not the whole situation, but I do think there's some of that. And if you frame it that way, um, you can recognize it's part of this more longstanding cultural um, you know, tendency. And it, 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 it's less about you know, people actively you know, uh, thinking they're not going to die or any of that. It's just, it, there's, there's a deeper, there's a deeper concern that people have tapped into. And I think that other point that you raised is a really important one as well. Um, you know, which is the, the value people place on what their neighbors have to say, um, as opposed to the abstraction that many scientific institutions are. So that's why I think one of the paths forward here is to, um, you know, try to offer more of a personal connection to scientific institutions. We know we know that um, when it comes to trust in science generally, that some of what has been worried about is actually overstated, that actually people generally do tend to trust science more than some of the headlines would suggest. And in particular, people trust, by and large, their personal healthcare provider. We are, and and that, that type of scientific professional is one of the most trusted um, you know, that, that's out there. And so let's try to make some sense of that. Well, part of that has to do with the known relationship you know, that you have you know, with your own provider. And so I do think that the personal connection you know, matters. And I think that maybe what we've, what's happened is that we've got on the one hand, um, you know, abstract scientific institutions with broad pronouncements that aren't necessarily personalized or offered by personal people, personal um, you know, spokespersons. And, and that, that, that level of abstraction is competing against you know, my uncle who I've known my whole life or my friend, you know, on a social media platform. And, you know, on, on some level, um, I feel like I've got more shared interest, uh, perhaps with the, the local connection. And so part of what we could do is to try to work with um, local ties and local spokespeople to, to um, help emphasize some of these messages. And I also think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, clinicians are vital here. I don't think that the um, all hope isn't lost. I do think there's possibility for moving ahead in a positive way. And I think clinicians are going to be a crucial part of that. But we've got a group that is professionally you know, exhausted and tired and frustrated with um, some of what they're facing right now. So that's one of the reasons why you know, we developed 
this training program. Um, it's partly, uh, you know, to support the clinicians who are in such a difficult position, but partly out of recognition that they offer a personal connection that is likely to be more credible, um, you know, than, um, than more uh, abstract sources of information. Right. Right. And this, you, you built this entire workshop uh, uh, for clinicians and teaching them how to talk to patients about misinformation about their health. And it's, it's, it's really quite impressive. And so, uh, let, let's talk a little bit more about the prescriptive nature of of, yeah. of that work you do, and, yeah. and and so how how should we approach our patients, uh, but also neighbors, friends, family, about yeah. health inf- inf- misinformation? And specifically, let's let's think about a patient maybe who's in your office, and you get to talking about health in general, and and they believe the pandemic is a hoax, yeah, and they're not interested in vaccination. And so, what are some of the concrete steps we can take? And then let's take that all the way down too, because the biggest thing is, you know, there's certain we're going to, you're going to make some really good recommendations, but also when we get to that kind of final level of it's about freedom or it's about some of these larger abstract issues, well, then how do you meet, you know, factual discussion may, may not yield you a a win for lack of a better term there or any ground. So, so how do, how do we, how do we go about it? Yeah, no, I think you're, you're on a good path in, in thinking about this and that, um, so part of what we also have to point out, you know, which, you know, you obviously know very well and many of your listeners do, you know, as well as, you know, the contemporary, um, you know, clinical context, which does not offer sometimes even as much time as this podcast, you know, for a conversation, right? You've got, you know, the a time limited, um, you know, situation. And so part of the reason I point that out is that it really is a matter, even from the standpoint of efficiency of, of choosing your battles. Um, we actually try to even stay away from the you know, battle metaphor, but you know, choosing opportunities for you know, discussion and to realize that um, you know, you've got an opportunity to um, you know, reaffirm and, and build you know, some degree of trust you know, further with this patient. Maybe there's an opportunity to point them to some you know, better information than they've uh, been attending to. One of the first realizations to have is that rather than a really frustrating part of your day, um, instead to try to turn that around and reframe that as an opportunity um, and an indication that you're doing something right, and which might sound like a bizarre thing for me to say. But what I want to suggest here is that if you're hearing about misinformation from a patient, it's better than not hearing it and having them be influenced by it and not be feel, feel comfortable telling you about it. That's true. So you have enough of a relationship that they brought it to your attention. So that, so there's some credibility for you to, um, and, and trust for you to, you know, to capitalize on. Now, I also think it's important, practically speaking, because you have a few minutes only to talk to people to not, to probably resist your instinct to draw from, um, you know, the 15 journal articles that come to mind, you know, to counter argue what they're saying, because a, a, a tit for tat, you know, um, you know, factual debate, there's not time for it. And you're not likely to, to win, you know, that, um, because it's, it's going to, it's going to lead you down a, a rabbit hole. It's going to be confrontational in a way. And I think instead the opportunity is to recognize where there's possibility for common ground in, in a couple of different ways, um, you know, here, I think you could try to find out, you know, the, the scenario that you just raised, um, you know, whether somebody's interested in vaccination, I think there's a, a clinical recommendation you could make there that hopefully would have, you know, some hold some weight. And we can talk about how to frame that. But in terms of them actually pointing directly to misinformation and to pointing to a hoax, 
I think the interesting and perhaps um, uh, you know disarming way to approach that is to show some curiosity and to suggest you know and ask why why that's important to them. Like they're exercised about the fact that it's a hoax. What are, what are they hearing that speaks to them? You know, what is it? And you might get at really a deeper, larger you know, worldview about their feelings about, um, you know, the National Institutes of Health or about some other you know, larger institution. But they and they might start to talk and reveal something about their values and preferences, which could, um, you know, lead you down a different line of, of of conversation. Maybe some of the concerns they have are very specific to a perceived side effect, and um, there's certain types of information you can direct them to. There's other things that might have to do more about worldview, or maybe it's something like you know cost or availability or some other you know aspect that um, you know by by asking them and leading with um, you know wh- trying to find out what their values and preferences are, which you can which are sometimes indicated and revealed by the kind of misinformation they're pointing to that might gent- give you a way to gently point them to um, you know, some sources of information that you think are, are, you know, useful. Now, I, I think at the same time um, it is, there is room for a line in the sand here. And I think that, you know, sometimes people hear uh, the emphasis um, on empathy and they think, gosh, we can't just accept what somebody's saying and and say whatever anybody says goes and it's fine. You know, you, everybody can have their own facts because that's not how facts work. Right. And so I do think that there are aspects of um, of your own you know, clinical experience of your own standing you know, that you can point out after you've established and reminded them of some of the shared interests that you know, that you have. And so in a case of a patient, you know, you're interested in them, you know, not uh, avoiding, you know, death. And, and, and I think that you've got a, a serious recommendation here that, um, you know, could improve their chances of living. And I think that it, it, it's not unreasonable to point out, um, you know, the extent of, to which you've, you know, personally seen, um, you know, death and, and devastation and, and, and difficulty, um, you know, as a result of, um, of the pandemic. So I think that there's, it's all right, I think, to puncture, you know, some of that, that myth, um, you know, with your own personal experience after you've you know, pointed out that you know, you're trying to, you know, also help them you know, avoid that. And I think, I think that might go further than, than you realize, but I think specifically when it comes to, um, you know, outlandish, uh, you know, articles that somebody you know, printed out off of the internet, um, the real, the real key is to resist your counter arguing tendency um, to not necessarily completely ignore the fact of it, you know, they, they raised it. And so there's something about it that's important to them, but to concentrate the conversation on um, trying to find out about their values and their preferences for the kind of care that they want to receive and, and, and all of that. And then to emphasize, you know, what you do know as sources that you believe and, and trust in and, and that's okay, you know, to also point out to them. I, I do think it's all right to have a stance here. I don't, I think that it's, it's dangerous, um, you know, perhaps to, you know, just completely accept whatever somebody says is, you know, without having feeling a, an obligation to raise, um, you know, your own, your own recommendation. But again, I'll leave some of that to the, the, the more uh, important clinical judgment of, of you and your colleagues. But as far as the misinformation goes, um, you know, avoiding, avoiding the counter arguing, looking for the, the values as a, 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 a signpost towards shared va- shared interest and and um, shared values, and then you know leaning in towards the conversation that emphasizes that. I think that's the right way to go. You want to lead with with empathy. You yeah. want to identify some values and preferences better. 
recognize shared interests with the shared interest being avoiding getting sick and dying right. and, and to resist outright dismissiveness of, of our, of our patients, try to find that common ground. Is that, is that yeah. correct? When yeah, I- absolutely. And I think, you know, part of it here is just to, to recognize and to look in the mirror a bit, um, you know, because of, you know, some of the, the eye rolling or disgust or the emotion that you probably are, are feeling, um, you know, when people raise this, um, it's probably important to, you know, try to identify how, to what extent you're expressing that to them. Um, and, and I think that that's, you know, there's a very human reaction, you know, that you might have um, you know, to it, but at the same time, um, you want to make sure that they still feel accepted as a, as a human being. And I think there's so many other contexts. That's why clinicians are so great to work with, because, you know, this generally is, is an approach that it's not hard to suggest this. It's just more a matter of reminding people that, yeah, in this search situation as well, we've got to look for people's humanity, um, you know, here. And, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not easy. I don't want to suggest that this is, um, but I do think it's more productive than uh, some of the dismissiveness than, than we hear. And, you know, it's interesting because we, we have these different scenarios in our workshops and, um, you know, we ask people, well, what would you do? And in many cases, um, you know, people point right away to, you know, all that's wrong in, you know, somebody's, uh, you know, piece of information and, oh, here's, there's this study or there's that. And, and and I understand that. That's how your mind works in terms of kind of quickly digesting and and you know making sense of all the available evidence that's out there. And and it's you know it's it's the basis for doing evidence based you know, medicine. But I I I don't think that stance is necessarily particularly conversationally helpful, and you don't really have time for it. So that's right. something that we really you know try to guard against. So so to, to to kind of finish it off, then what 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 if you've 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 embodied all these things that that these recommendations that you have, and you're very empathetic, you have a good relationship with your patient, you talk a little bit about some specific uh, misinformation, uh, maybe gently debunk it, offer up a few kind of core scientific facts. And you, and you learn that this uh, your patient, as you kind of dig down uh, deeper, that at, at the base of it all is this resistance to authority, uh, sticking yeah. it to the man, the, the freedom aspect of it, yeah. the uh, mistrust of, of larger, uh, of us, as you say, government. Um, yeah. Do you have any recommendations for that patient, when you've really picked through it, you're at and and, and actually and, and they and maybe even the patient agrees that they've kind of thrown away. They said maybe they have some excuses for you up front or some rationale yeah. up front that they're even like, okay, well that that's all gone. Now we've we've established we've come to a conclusion that maybe these things aren't true, and yet I'm still against the vaccine for this reason. Is there? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, a way. It's, well, I mean, I, I think I think on some level, um, it's probably appropriate, uh, you know, to point out the extent of the professional relationship that you and the patient have. And, and that's one that's predicated in part on, you know, them having shown up in order to, um, you know, to get care, uh, you are, um, you know, there to not do any harm, um, and to do what, you know, what could be done to, you know, to offer, um, you know, that, that care, and I think the more that it can be localized to being a matter of, um, you know, let's leave aside for a moment, uh, you know, what it is that uh, you know the federal government is is uh, announcing. Um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, you you as the clinician, um, you know, have a, a recommendation you know for them that's rooted in your best judgment. Um, that's probably the best you can do. But I think framing it in that way. 
and pointing out that you know this patient often has um, you know followed you know that advice uh, in other circumstances. Um, you know, unless we want to throw away that whole you know relationship, and I don't think you necessarily need to be explicit about saying that. But I mean, that's really the you know, the basis for them continuing to come visit you um, is their their trust in your judgment under some circumstances. And so there, I think it's it's okay for you to explicitly endorse. Um, and we know that personal endorsement on the part of clinicians is powerful and it matters. And I think it gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. I think that there are times where um, people don't go out on a limb or express, expressly um, you know, say what they personally think. Um, partly because there's a sense of frustration or, oh, this is person's a lost cause or they don't want to hear it, you know, anyway, without realizing that actually, um, you know, one of the most powerful social norms is the norm, uh, the norm of perception that you think, um, you know, your clinician has. So I think that there's a powerful role there that I'd, I'd like to just encourage, you know, people to, you know, be explicit. Um, if they have, if you have information that you think can save somebody's life um, and it comes for your own you know, personal and professional judgment, I think it's okay to offer that as, as your professional judgment. And I think that that, that part of it, surprisingly, we don't often get to that point in these discussions because there's a sense that, well, this, I'm not going down that road with this patient. They seem to have shown no interest. They started, you know, espousing, you know, all this talk about, um, you know, hoaxes and I'm not even going to go there with them. Well, right. uh, then, then you've not, then you've, then you've perhaps missed an opportunity. Right. And it's important to remember that, that, there are a lot of wins to be had and that that relationship yes. does matter and your recommendations do matter. And so with the empathetic approach, a calm approach uh, that, that you can uh, make a big difference. Well, and the other thing here too, is I, I tend to operate from a public health perspective, um, you know, here in which obviously, you know, every life is deeply valuable. Um, but it's also the case, you know, that if we can, you know, affect and and make positive change and in some cases you know from a population level that's that's better than not having done that and so i think it's important to not be disheartened by you know the one instance in which somebody you know didn't take your recommendation um if you've made a difference in in a few others that still might matter from a population perspective and so especially as we're battling this pandemic and i think that's probably important to keep in mind too absolutely absolutely well there really is a ton more to talk about, but we're going we're gonna to end it here. Dr. Brian Southwell, it's been a pleasure having you on Behind the Knife. And a, a, again, a, just a fascinating discussion in uh, a topsy-turvy world here. So we appreciate you helping us make some sense of it and uh, for taking the time out of your busy day. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for all you're doing. And, and thanks for putting a spotlight on the role that uh, you know, social science can play um, you know, in medicine. It's something that I think is underappreciated, and, um, and I appreciate you putting a spotlight on it. So thanks so much. Until next time, dominate the day.